Everything you're hearing is from the Home Depot, from the baseboards and nails, to these throw pillows, even those super soft sheets. Because now at the Home Depot, you can get everything for your bedroom, from wooden nightstands to modern benches. Save up to 25% on select bedroom furniture, plus free and flexible delivery and easy in-store returns. Shop decor now at homedepot.com. More saving, more kinds of doing. Valid on select items online only. Free delivery on select items, $45 or more. Visit homedepot.com for more information. Welcome, everyone, to Creating a Family, talk about infertility and adoption. Today, we're going to be talking about a topic that was requested by you, our audience, understanding standard infertility test. I think it is intimidating for a lot of people at the very beginning because they aren't exactly sure what they're getting into, and so we hope that this show allays some of your fears or at least gives you an explanation of what to expect. Here's a sample of what you're going to hear. What she's really asking about is what we call pelvic adhesions or scar tissue. And I think the best way to conceptualize that is, is if you have a piece of bubble gum stuck between two fingers, that's sort of the equivalent of what we think of in adhesions. Uh, adhesions can arise from an infection. They can arise from surgery. They can arise from endometriosis. They can arise from a cyst that ruptures. Uh, they can arise from non-pelvic things like appendicitis. I'm Dawn Davenport. I'm the director of Creating a Family. We are the National Infertility and Adoption Education and Support Nonprofit. You can find us online at creatingafamily.org. One of the things we do here at Creating a Family is create resources. We do a lot of that. And one resource that we create are multimedia guides. And there is a particular multimedia guide that I think you're really going to enjoy, and that is How to Choose an Infertility Clinic. It is and has become the go-to resource for people at the very beginning of their infertility journey to learn more about uh, the whole process of how to choose a clinic, what to expect, questions to ask, how to understand the, the statistics for success, things such as that. You can go to, you can uh, get this resource on our website, creatingafamily.org. Hover over the word uh, resource in the horizontal menu and click on e-guides, and it will take you right there. The Creating a Family radio show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. For women who have been undergoing fertility treatment and are still struggling to conceive, there are so many daily scenarios and interactions that come up that take a real toll on their emotional health. So in conjunction with uh, Dr. Ali Domar and Dr. Elizabeth Grill, Faring brings you Verticom. It is an app for both uh, Apple and Android phones and it was developed by Drs. Domar and Grill, and it was designed specifically to help women address the many challenge and emotional, emotional life situations that will come up when you're struggling to conceive and it's not happening. They deal with 500 different uh, options for over 50 specific situations, uh, and uh, I love the format. You can type in uh, your, what you're experiencing, the situation that you need help with, and they come up with a, a host of suggestions for each one of those scenarios, cognitive, behavioral, relaxation, just a, a number of things that you can, you can consider. Uh, I really, this is a great app, and I, I want more and more people to utilize it. You can get more information at the website, which is verticomapp.com, and the app is APP, 
So FERTA, F-E-R-T-I-C-A-L-M, C-A-L-M, A-P-P.com. This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support from our partners who believe in our mission of providing unbiased education, medically accurate information, and support to those struggling to create a family. Some of our wonderful gold sponsors include Fairfax Cryobank. They have been a leader in sperm donation for over 25 years and are dedicated to supplying updated, verified, and accurate medical and personal information on their donors. Only one in 200 applicants make it through their screening process to become a donor. We also have IntegraMed Fertility. They are the largest network of fertility practices in the country. By combining the latest innovations in the reproductive sciences with compassionate and customized treatment plans, IntegraMed practices are able to provide the very best possible care. In addition to these partners, we also have others whose generosity allows us to bring you this show. So when choosing an infertility service provider, please go to the Creating a Family directories, which you can find on our site, and choose one of, of, of those who sponsor us and believe in us. By using these directories, you support those who support us, and we thank you. Today we're going to be talking about the beginning test, or just actually all tests, understanding the standard infertility test that you may be facing when you go to a clinic for the first time as well as throughout your care. Our guest today are Dr. George Grunert. He is a reproductive endocrinologist and founder of Houston Fertility Specialist. We also have Dr. Virginia Mensa. She is a reproductive endocrinologist with Reproductive Science Center of New Jersey. Welcomes Drs. Grunert and Drs. Mensa to Creating a Family. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. Good afternoon. Well, this show came out, or the topic of this show, came out of some questions we've been getting from folks who were just beginning to think about seeing a specialist. And it seems that the unknown is one of the factors when we try to, to, one of the things we try to do here at Creating a Family is get people to seek specialized care sooner rather than later. And when we run surveys trying to understand what's keeping people, from getting themselves to an infertility clinic, oftentimes we hear it's the unknown. Uh, and there are other reasons as well, but but the unknown of, of what the, what to expect uh, and and what's going to happen. And in specific, some of the the actual tests uh, are are a concern: how invasive, how expensive, all of that. So uh, hence this hence this show. It was directly suggested by more than one of the people in our online community. But before we talk about actual testing, I I wanted to talk about some of the questions that a doctor might be asking you, and and an infertility specialist, a reproductive endocrinologist, might be asking when you first make an appointment that will help them come up with a treatment plan and, and and, and a diagnosis. Dr. Mensa. Can you help explain just some of the initial questions that are important to you in, when trying to come up with a diagnosis and treatment? Absolutely. And again, Don, thank you so much for having me on your show today. Um, well, believe it or not, um, doing a detailed history as well as physical exam during the infertility evaluation is a critical component of allowing um, us as physicians to get a better understanding of potentially what could be happening as far as um, you know the difficulty with conceiving. And so some important basic questions that we always garner on patients include things like um, important medical history, you know, any history of 
medical conditions like high blood pressure, diabetes, all of those things can um, come into play. Additionally, um, any prior surgeries, particularly pelvic surgeries, things like laparoscopy or laparotomy, um, can often also be associated with um, things like pelvic adhesion, scar tissue, again, all things that could potentially impact fertility. Additionally, what medications a woman is on um, prior to pregnancy are also very important uh, with respect to, again, just sometimes challenges that come up um, with you know, managing certain medications during a pregnancy um, as well as you know, potentially affecting um, some level of fertility depending on the medication. Uh, and then, of course, obviously very important is also a, a good thorough gynecologic history, which usually involves getting information about you know, how often um, a patient is having a menstrual cycle. Um, often that gives us some indication of whether or not an individual is ovulating. So, for example, if a patient um, hasn't had a menstrual cycle in many, many months, um, that can be potentially a sign that there's some ovulatory difficulties. Um, also, just general information about how frequently um, she's having intercourse or relations with her partner, uh, as well as the timing of those relations are also all very important information that we garner at the first visit. So, Dr. Mensah, do you want, is it helpful for you if patients have been tracking their ovulation before they come to you for the first time and bring that tracking with them so that you can look at that? Absolutely. And, you know, it's funny because this day and age with the technology being as it is, you know, everyone seems to have an app on their phone. Um, and oh, so yeah. Certainly it's, it's, <laughs> it's certainly useful information um, coming into a visit uh, so that we can kind of, as your providers, sort of assess and see, um, you know, how frequently your ovulation is coming. You know, oftentimes women will also do um, at-home ovulation predictor kits um, to give them also an indication of ovulation mm -hmm. um, through actually urinary testing. Um, so all of that information can be very useful at the first visit. Okay, Dr. Grunert, is a physical exam a standard part of that first, uh, the first visit to an uh, infertility clinic? Right, absolutely. You know, you've got to, as, as Dr. Mensah pointed out, you know, get a detailed history. Uh, the other important question I would add in is how long somebody's been trying to get pregnant. If they've been trying for six months or six years, that makes a big difference in the likelihood that we're going to find something uh, important to treat. But the physical examination is normal to ensure that anatomy is normal, that they're not uh, fibroids or cysts, or anything like that that would significantly affect fertility. But it's also important, I think, to talk to the uh, woman's partner, uh, see if he has any medical issues, if he's had children before, if he's had in the same idea, surgery, radiation therapy, chemotherapy, uh, anything that would affect sperm function. I am so glad you raised at the beginning the issue of, of male testing. And before we get any further, and I do want to circle back to talk about the physical exam and, and what you're looking for, but I, it, it always amazes me, and it, does, it seems to happen frequently, that we will have people on, we have a huge online support group, and we'll have people talk about doing fairly invasive tests, and it turns out that their partner has not had a basic semen analysis, which is unbelievable to me, um, but, but perhaps not, actually. Maybe I shouldn't be so surprised. Dr. Grunet, what percentage of the time is male factor infertility or a, a defect in the sperm or sperm count a cause or, or at least a contributing factor to a couple's infertility? 
You have to realize by the time we as reproductive endocrinologists see people, uh, simple things have probably been excluded and treated. So in the practice that I have, about 40% of the time there is a male factor. It may not be the only factor. It may be a contributing factor. And now, I agree with you. Most infertility evaluations begin with a gynecologist, so most gynecologists focus on the woman. And it's very uh, disappointing sometimes to see patients come in who've had you know, four, six, 12 months worth of therapy and then sperm count that, that tells you there's a significant problem there. So you can't ignore yeah. that. It's one of the four critical areas that we look at in terms of fertility. Oh, absolutely. And and because the test is both less expensive and less invasive, um, it, it feels like it should be a uh, one of the first things it's done uh, but at least it, at least in some cases it is not and and does it matter uh dr mensa where a male gets the sperm analysis done the the uh the husband or the or the male partner uh does it need to be done at a urologist's office can it be done where can it be done uh and so that the test the results are uh are thorough enough for an infertility clinic to use yeah, absolutely, and that's a great question um, because oftentimes, you know, it's a little bit hard for patients, especially when they haven't come to see a reproductive specialist to sort of know where to go to uh, potentially begin the evaluation on their own. Um, but there are plenty of centers, um, like our own here in New Jersey, that actually offer the evaluation um, within our center. We have andrologists that are specially trained in um, essentially evaluating sperm um, as far as the important um, components of a semen analysis that we look for. Um, you know, again, it is typically available either at the infertility clinic itself or oftentimes at a urologist's office. And sometimes um, there's availability at, you know, different hospitals. The only problem that sometimes comes up is, again, um, you know, sort of the the level of expertise that either the, the different hospital um, or center has with respect to analyzing semen, um, because there are very specific criteria that have been laid out, um, particularly by the WHO, um, that sort of specifies normal and abnormal parameters um, for a semen analysis. So I would say, you know, most infertility centers usually offer some level of that type of evaluation um, in-house or, you know, it's a send-out. Um, but oftentimes, yes, it can be challenging um, if a, a patient is going out on their own to try to find a place to do a semen analysis to make sure that that location um, is actually comfortable using um, our sort of national standards. Right, so that you can, that you get, so you only have to do it once uh, or at least uh, once at the beginning. Exactly. All right. Dr. Grunert, we were talking about uh, the uh, physical exam. Is a pelvic ultrasound uh, needed in order to be able to see the, or not see, but to feel and see, the uterus, the fallopian tubes, the ovaries, and all of that? Or what can you tell just by feel alone? Well, if there's a, a large mass, an abnormality, nodule, something that's tender, that'll give you information on that. But an ultrasound is part of the initial evaluation because it can give you a clue about uh, the uterus, where there's something abnormal that affects the ability of an embryo to implant in the uterus. We can't really see the tubes on ultrasound very well unless we inject uh, fluid, uh, and even at that ultrasound is not the, the best way to look at the tubes. More importantly, we use ultrasound to look at the ovaries, make sure, again, they're not cysts or anything abnormal there, and we look at uh, the number of follicles in the ovaries, the follicles of the small cysts that contain the eggs, and that can give us a very good idea of ovarian function. 
uh, ultrasound looking at the uterus can also give us an idea about congenital abnormalities to the uterus, although, again, it may not be the, the diagnostic test. It may send you in a different direction. So is there, since you're going to be looking at, at all of this, is there a time in a woman's cycle that is preferable for them to schedule their first visit to you? And Dr. Grennan, I'll, ask, I'll, I'll throw this one yours to you as well. Yeah, ideally, we'd like to see people right after their menstrual cycle. Uh, uh, most hormone tests, examinations, et cetera, are normalized for about day three of the menstrual cycle if we count day one as the first day of the period. Uh, it doesn't mean it has to be day three, two, three, four, five, or, or all valid days. But, for example, if you're looking at a cyst and somebody comes in at mid-cycle just before ovulation, a cyst is normal and should be there. Uh, so there's some things we can do that are not related to the menstrual cycle, but there's some things that we would rather do right after the cycle to give us more accurate information. Okay. All right. Uh, Dr. Mensa, uh, we certainly know that ovarian reserves are important uh, in determining uh, this, what type of treatment, diagnosis, as well as ultimately success. Um, so what type of tests? Our standard are part of the standard workup uh, to help you understand what a what the ovaries reserves look like for that particular woman. Yeah, so when it comes to ovarian reserve testing, really um, I would say most reproductive endocrinologists at this point are really focusing on some key hormones um, that are involved in the process of um, developing a mature follicle. Um, and these include tests like a day three, as Dr. Gunnar was mentioning, um, follicle-stimulating hormone, or FSH, testing, along with estradiol. And then more recently, there's been a test uh, that's developed um, really over the last 10, 15 years that's called anti-mullerian hormone, or AMH, testing. And both of these can provide very valuable information with respect to, um, in some ways, you know, the, the reproductive lifespan left within that ovary. And these are blood tests that you just Correct. described? Correct. Gotcha. And typically the follicle-stimulating hormone test with estradiol testing um, is done uh, around day three of the cycle. Again, sort of you have a little bit of leeway between days you know, two through three, four, or five. Um, but the anti-mullerian hormone testing can actually be done really at any point in the menstrual cycle. And we have a question from Laura, and Dr. Grunert, I will uh, ask this one to you. She wants to know whether thyroid testing is a standard part of, of blood testing as well as for testosterone and progesterone. Um, are these standard parts of your initial workup, or is this something that's done ever? Or if, and if not, or, and if so, then at what, at what stage do you do it? So thyroid testing is important <clears throat> excuse me, prior to pregnancy because we would like patients who are hypothyroid to be identified and treated. Um, but if somebody's having regular cycles, the likelihood that they are significantly hyper or hypothyroid uh, is relatively low. Uh, progesterone is a hormone that the ovary produces after ovulation. And we'll use that in documenting ovulation. We'll use it sometimes in following response to ovarian stimulation and ovulation induction. Uh, testosterone is a male hormone made primarily in women from the ovary, and it really plays a role in women who have symptoms of male hormone excess, and that's uh, excess hair growth, acne, things like that. 
Mm-hmm. And someone with a normal exam with no evidence of androgen excess with regular cycles, uh, testosterone is usually not that helpful. What, what I, th- I think you're getting at and what I think is important is that patients tend this day and age to go visit Dr. Google and they come in with a million things that need to be done and a million potential problems and four million advertisements and tests and things like that. Mm-hmm. And what I think is important for patients to remember is that everything fits into one of several categories. The woman has to be capable of producing eggs. The man has to be capable of producing sperm that can fertilize eggs. The tubes have to be open and capable of picking up an egg, and the uterus has to be normal to land embryo to implant. And everything fits in one of those kind of four mailboxes, as it were. Meaning every fertility issues and are going to each are generally caused by one of those, are going to fit in one of those categories. Is, is that a understanding you correctly? Yeah, and a significant percentage of patients will have more than one issue. Uh, that's why what you'll see, and, and you were getting at this earlier, is patients, for example, who don't ovulate, so they go through six months of ovulation induction, and then they finish their workup, and they find that their partner has a low sperm count, or mm-hmm. their tubes are blocked, and they've wasted a lot of time and money and effort. Mm-hmm. So I think it's very important to do a comprehensive evaluation before beginning therapy uh, so that then you can identify problems that people have and address them. And it really doesn't benefit you if you treat problems people don't have, uh, which I'm sure we all see frequently. Well, and it's it's not only, you know, in potentially invasive or you're taking drugs you don't need to take, but it, and and of course there's an expense. Although depending on what the, if it's oral meds, it may not be terribly expensive. But it's but it also wastes time, and uh, for for most people, uh, time is in short supply when they're looking at their fertility and fertility treatment. And it, that's the part that worries me the most is when I see people who stay with their uh, gynecologist for two years. And, and honestly, we have we have people who say they have stayed and, and been on Clomid for two years, um, and uh, you know there's there's so many issues associated with that. Um, and this actually begs a question that we got. And Dr. Grunert, uh, I'll ask this to you. This is from Carrie. She says this may be a stupid question, but rather than go through a bunch of tests, why wouldn't I just try Clomid to see if it works? I think you may have answered that, but go ahead and, and Dr. Grunert, give it a answer it again then. So I, I would use another analogy. Uh, your car didn't start this morning, so you fill up the gas tank, and you now have a car that doesn't start because you have a dead battery and a full tank of gas. And you, what you've done is wasted a lot of time and not gotten at the source of the problem. So just saying you know, infertility equals clomid therapy really doesn't help you because you want to identify what's going wrong and you want to treat it appropriately. Uh, and you're saying you know, clomid, for example, is not terribly expensive, but six months in the grand scheme of things mm-hmm. is very expensive uh, for yeah. women in trying to get pregnant. Exactly. Yeah, that that it's the expenses and the time that you've lost uh, in uh, in trying to um, and, and six months may seem like a lot, but it can absolutely, depending on your age, make a difference. All right, Dr. Mensa, what percentage of infertility is caused by PCOS? And then the next question will be, how do you test for PCOS? And, and that is polycystic ovary, ovary, ovary syndrome. 
Yeah, so there can be a large proportion of, you know, infertility associated with polycystic ovarian syndrome. I would say just to step it back a little bit, I mean, that kind of also presents a broader category of um, fertility issues as far as anovulation. And, you know, again, estimates vary, but anywhere from 20 to 40% of the time in the woman, it could be an ovulatory um, associated issue. But as to actually diagnosing polycystic ovarian syndrome, it's actually um, a sort of not really discrete disorder per se, but itself is a spectrum um, of essentially fertility issues that involve typically a woman that presents that often will go undergo a brief evaluation with an ultrasound and will have findings of polycystic ovaries, for example. Additionally, um, there are criteria, um, again, different clinics use different criteria, but for our uh, all intensive purposes, Rotterdam criteria is one example where a woman would also have to report a history of irregular menstrual cycles or, or missed periods even, um, and then also um, have some evidence of either clinical or biochemical evidence of uh, hyperandrogenism, meaning you know abnormal hair growth, um, acne issues, um, things of that nature. Um, so really, you know, it's a sort of spectrum disorder. You need at least two out of those three um, categories to sort of qualify as potentially being at risk for polycystic ovarian syndrome. And even then, um, it itself is a bit of a diagnosis of exclusion, as we call it, meaning that um, we like to evaluate for other causes of why a woman may not be ovulating. Um, and as Dr. Goddard mentioned before, you know, sometimes it could be an issue with ovulation associated with issues with the thyroid, uh, and therefore we do testing to rule out that that is a contributing factor. Sometimes um, other hormonal testing also is indicated, um, like prolactin levels, uh, as well as testing for ovarian reserve that, again, gives us a, a sort of fuller and more complete picture of whether a woman might have polycystic ovarian syndrome. Okay. And Dr. Grunner, you mentioned that although a pelvic ultrasound is, is um, a standard part of an initial uh, pelvic exam, it wasn't necessarily the the best for seeing tubes or even uh, assessing the normality of uh, of a uterus. So, if you have reason to believe that tubal issues are involved, and that was one of the uh, mailboxes or categories you had described, uh, or the uterus itself is abnormal, how do you go about determining that other than through a, a pelvic ultrasound? So the best uh, initial screening exam to look at both the tubes and the uterus and gives you that information in one test is an HSG x-ray. And that's a test done, again, after a menstrual cycle when there's no chance of pregnancy, where we inject dye into the cervix, and then we can actually, uh, on x-ray, watch the dye fill the uterus, so that gives us an idea of the shape of the inside of the uterus, and watch the dye go out through both tubes and make sure the tubes are open. Uh, there are other tests for that that involve surgery, but the HSC is generally the first test that we do. And we have a question, actually, and, and Georgiana has asked a number of questions, but this is one about the uh, HSG test. She wants to know, she says she has heard it's very painful, and she wants to know if that is true. Dr. Grunert? I mean, pain is subjective and varies from, from woman to woman. Generally, it causes cramping similar to a menstrual cycle, uh, it can be painful, for example, if the tubes are blocked so that you're injecting dye and the dye has nowhere to go. Uh, if it becomes painful, then we basically uh, stop the test at that point. But uh, I would not think that that should be a barrier to having that information because it's very important to know if the tubes are open. Again, if you're doing something and you find later the tubes are blocked, 
you've wasted a lot of time and money and effort in addressing a problem that uh, is probably inappropriate. Right, yeah. And so how do you when do you know whether you need to do an an, an HSG? Uh, is is it based on on the pelvic ultrasound on the woman's history, both blood tests? How, how do you know because that's is that a standard you don't do this as a or is it a standard part of every workup? Uh, for me, I'd consider it a standard part of every workup. If we look at it, just using history in an abnormal ultrasound or a history of surgery or infection, that raises the suspicion of a tubal abnormality. But if we look at people with tubal problems, most of them have no history. Uh, they don't recall having had an infection. They haven't had a uh, you know, pelvic inflammatory disease. They haven't had surgery, things like that. And so at some point in time, you need to know about that. Now, there are places where... We don't do that sometimes if we have somebody who, for other reasons, has to do IVF. We're not that concerned about the tubes, but we still want to make sure the uterus is normal. And we can can get a pretty good idea of the uterus under ultrasound, but ultrasound has not been that reliable for us to look at the tubes. Right. Okay. All right, we have another question from Georgiana. Uh, Dr. Mensa, I'm going to ask this one to you. George, uh, I'm going to read the whole question, she says. I'm... I am so, so glad you are doing this topic. We have been trying to get pregnant since we got married two years ago. Actually, even before we got married, we stopped using birth control. I'm 39 now, and my husband is 35. I have have listened to many of your shows and have read your book on how to choose an infertility clinic. I feel like we are ready to take the plunge and see a specialist. I had to get over my fear of all the invasive procedures and to give up my dream of just getting pregnant on my own. Thank you to Creating the Family for helping me get off my butt. Uh, Our insurance doesn't cover fertility treatment. We are using some of your resources on how to afford it, but it is still going to set us back a lot of money. I am wondering which test I can get done at my OBGYN and still have the results accepted by an infertility clinic when we decide on one. Will my insurance be likely to pay for them if they are done at the gynecologist's office? Do they need to be coded in a way to be diagnostic rather than treatment, or is that still a thing? All right, there's a, a couple of uh, uh, of questions uh, all packed together in that. Uh, Dr. Mincy, you want to give it a shot unpacking them? Sure, I will absolutely give it a shot. Um, there are a number of questions in that, but um, certainly <laughs> I think um, uh, first and foremost, yes, it's totally reasonable to approach your gynecologist about hopefully at least initiating the evaluation. A lot of the work um, that can be done can often be done in a gynecologist's office um, because typically it at least involves the preliminary screening um, testing. So some of the blood work, which we had mentioned before, such as ovarian reserve testing, um, as long it's done in the follicular phase of the cycle, and most gynecologists are aware um, to do it during this time of the cycle, um, as well as some of the other testing as indicated, like your thyroid or prolactin levels or other viral testing. Um, As to the insurance issue, that's what gets a little bit more complicated, unfortunately, um, because, again, every state is a little different as far as, you know, level of coverage. Um, For example, here in New Jersey, we're on the luckier side since um, we, we often have, we're a mandated state, so there is usually some level of coverage available to uh, many patients. Um, But in other states and in other locations, of course, that's not the case. Um, So certainly um, one way to possibly try to reduce the cost of that is, you know, again, exactly to try to get screened through your primary care doctor or through your gynecologist. Um, But other ways, exactly. I mean, sometimes, unfortunately, that's not possible or, you know, gynecologists would prefer, you know, all the screening to be done through the reproductive endocrinologist. And exactly when that 
kind of falls into our lap. Again, we do everything we can as your providers uh, in order to try to help mitigate the costs, whatever that may be. But obviously within the, you know, the ethical boundaries that um, sure. sort of we, we practice. Yeah. You know, one of the can I ch really chime in on that for just a second? Yeah, absolutely. Texas is a little bit different state, uh, but yes. virtually every policy here has coverage for fertility testing to determine the cause of infertility. Uh, and the coverage shouldn't vary with whether your primary care physician or your gynecologist or a reproductive endocrinologist is ordering the testing uh, as long as, again, you're using codes that are appropriate for fertility testing. Well, one of my concerns, and, and maybe this is... is uh, is just not true. But one of my concerns would be you get the testing done at your gynecologist, but it's not exactly what the reproductive endocrinologist is looking for, so you end up having to have the test redone at the infertility clinic. I mean, Dr. Gunnar, does how often does that, is that a real concern or is that just something I worry about in my head? Uh, a little bit of both. It does happen sometimes, but a lot of times the testing is done at the right time. It's appropriate. Uh, these are standard tests that standard clinical laboratories do all the time. And so if we have something that's done right, there's not a reason to have to repeat it here. The one thing I would, would point out that's, I think, important is you're focusing on testing for fertility, but we've got somebody who's trying to get pregnant. And the one thing that I see frequently is a focus on fertility, but not pre-pregnancy testing. Uh, it's very disappointing to patients, for example, to come in and be tested. We want to make sure if you're trying to get pregnant that you're immune to viral illnesses like rubella and varicella. And have them come in and say, by the way, you're not immune. We need to vaccinate you. You need to wait two months. I think those are standard things that you would like everybody prior to pregnancy to do. Right, yeah, and that that could be then that, that that those are tests that can be done at the gynecologist. As long Certainly. as we're on uh, Georgiana's questions, uh, let me ask her last one. Doctor uh, Grunert, I'll direct this one to you. She said, "I was on the pill for 20 years before trying to get pregnant. Did this hurt my fertility? Is there any test to find out if it did?" So the answer is yes and no. Being on the pill for 20 years shouldn't hurt fertility. Uh, what it did do is delay her until she's 39 now, so 38 when she started to get pregnant or try to get pregnant. And when we look at everything, we're talking about fertility factors and ovulation and PCO and male factor and things like that. Uh, the number one thing that we deal with as reproductive endocrinologists is age. We know that fertility stays stable out to the early 30s, 32, 33, 34, and then starts to drop. And so I think it's important for anybody over 35 who's been trying for pregnancy, let's say, for six months and hasn't gotten pregnant uh, to get started in the evaluation and treatment process. Uh, I think anybody 40 or over who thinks about getting pregnant uh, ought to get started now rather than trying for a year and waiting until she's 41. Yes, for sure. And, and I think Georgiana actually did start trying when she was 35. She's 37 now. Okay, All right. so I thought she was 39. Okay. Yeah. Well, well, I make her feel older. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you know, don't add two years to any woman's age there, okay? That's just a mistake. Um, all right. Um, this one may fall under the Dr. Google category. Dr. Mensa, let's talk some, and I realize this is a, a, has, is, is a fairly controversial in the field. Let's talk some about immunolo immunological issues and testing and when that should be done 
Uh, and let's start kind of more generally just to make certain that everybody is on the same page here. How does our, or is it possible, let me ask that way, for our, uh, our immune system to impact our ability to get pregnant? So it's a great question, Don, but unfortunately it is very controversial and not very evidence-based at this point. Um, I'm sure Dr. Gunnert might have a, a similar or different opinion. We'll, we'll see. But, um, yeah, you know, it, there I'll is a whole... Yeah, I, um, you know, there's a whole field, you know, of reproductive immunology that, you know, is often uh, sometimes found in the literature, found uh, online and things like Google. Um, but unfortunately, there's not a lot of good data that supports very specific etiologies of an immune factor uh, relating to infertility. I mean, it can certainly play a role and contribute in probably ways that are not yet very clearly understood to us. Um, but as far as, you know, are there any standard immunological tests that we perform in order to sort of screen for and, you know, evaluate to see if they're playing a role in infertility, it really, you know, it kind of comes into play more importantly for, for example, a woman that has, let's say, premature ovarian insufficiency. Um, somebody like that, if we did ovarian reserve testing, would have poor reserve, we'd potentially do a further evaluation and then consider screening for different immunologic um, etiologies that might be contributing. But as for, you know, a woman that doesn't really have a concerning history, kind of is coming in, you know, with a difficulty to conceive and doesn't have any um, sort of red flags being raised, um, you know, I, I can't say that, you know, I in this practice or um, any of my colleagues um, in our field, you know, typically do any standard sort of immunological testing uh, to assess for infertility issues. Dr. Grunner, you want to weigh in on this one? Yeah, I would, I would actually agree. Uh, I think it's an area where there's a lot of smoke, but nobody has identified a fire yet. Uh, okay. you know, it's interesting that if you look at the physiology of pregnancy, you have an embryo that implants in a uterus, and half of the the genes, antigens, chromosomes, whatever, in that embryo are not maternal. They're from the father's side. And yet the uterus is an immunologically privileged site in that mom doesn't reject the pregnancy. Uh, so there are certainly some immunologic uh, or autoimmune diseases that have been related to fertility, such as lupus, things like that. That's very uh, uncommon in the patient population that we see. But there's not really a standard agreement on uh, you know, antibodies cause infertility, standard testing, things like that. It's uh, an area that I think is, uh, unfortunately for patients, kind of ripe for exploitation sometimes. And so we have to be very careful of doing things that we think are valid and evidence-based uh, rather than, like you say, I read it on Google. Right. And it's hard because uh, when people don't have an answer and for something they want so badly, they will they they of course are going to be looking for anything and i guess that's the that's the challenge for the medical profession is is to be the voice of reason when people are grasping for straws um and uh, i don't envy you on that one cuz I, I imagine it's it is hard um now let's talk about miscarriage uh it's always interesting to me that in fact uh we did a show not that long ago on um on miscarriage causes and treatment or whatever and somebody wrote in, and she goes, well, I don't, she started her question by saying, I don't know if this really qualifies for as infertility, but I've had six mis miscarriages and no live births. And I thought, well, of course it does. I mean, you're not able to get, you're not able to stay pregnant. And she didn't have problems getting pregnant. So let's talk some about miscarriages. 
Uh, and uh, and uh, we'll start with you, uh, Dr. Grunner. Does it matter? Uh, you've got a woman who I believe, uh, well, you could tell me what's the definition. Uh, last I heard, ASRM was defining it's two or more miscarriages. So you've got somebody coming in who's had recurrent miscarriages. Uh, what type of test do you run, and does it matter what trimester the miscarriage occurred? So uh, what you're talking about is a category called re- uh, recurrent pregnancy loss, or RPL, and it does fall into the purview of reproductive endocrine and infertility because you have to look at the reason for miscarriage. So yeah, if you have very, very early miscarriages, that may indicate an endometrial problem. For example, uh, the embryo is not getting proper nutrition when it implants. If you look at miscarriages later in the first trimester, classically ones where the pregnancy sac forms but the fetus doesn't or the fetus grows a little bit and then stops growing, if we do chromosome testing, the vast majority of those are actually due to an abnormality in the number of chromosomes in the embryo. And if you look at miscarriages after the first trimester, so after 13, 14 weeks, then we start thinking of other diseases, constitutional factors in the mother, uh, uterine abnormalities, things like that. So the majority of people that we see with recurrent miscarriage are patients who've miscarried at 6, 8, 10 weeks, something like that. Uh, The first thing you'd like to know is if anybody did chromosome testing or genetic testing on the miscarriage itself. Because if the miscarriage is due to a chromosomal abnormality, that can either be just random, sporadic, or it can be inherited. If somebody has a pattern of miscarriages and the embryo is repeatedly normal, uh, then that's sort of a different category of things. The one thing we want to worry about or want to look at in women with recurrent miscarriage, number one, does she or does her partner have what's called a translocation? It's a subtle chromosomal rearrangement that means when they go to reproduce, there's a much higher than average chance that the embryo will be abnormal. The chance of abnormality is also related to age. So as women get older, everybody I think is aware of the increased risk of Down syndrome with age, and Downs is an embryo that has an extra copy of chromosome 21. But if you have an extra copy of any other chromosome or a missing copy of any other chromosome, it can create an embryo that has the ability to implant but not to continue to grow. The second broad category are abnormalities in the uterus and uterine lining. Uh, Is there a structural abnormality? Is there a fibroid? Is there a septum? Uh, Something that would allow an embryo to implant but not continue to grow and and be nurtured well. Uh, For years, people have looked at a group called thrombophilia. Thrombophilia is inherited disorders of blood clotting as a cause of recurrent miscarriage. Uh, No specialty society right now recommends testing for that because the likelihood in any individual without another history of blood clotting disorder is that's not going to be a significant factor. That's where the history comes in, too. You know, when did you miscarry? Were they all the same? Were they different? Uh, And that kind of guides you in terms of your evaluation. If you are not seeing a reproductive endocrinologist, uh, what do you do if you have a miscarriage? Where, Where do you take the 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 fetal remains or the miscarriage itself to to have it analyzed, uh, and how soon do you have to do that, uh, Dr. Brennan? Since you're talking about miscarriage, let's go ahead and have you answer that one. Well, 
Yeah. Classically, what happened was that you had to obtain tissue fresh from the miscarriage, for example, at a DNC, and then culture it and allow the chromosomes to grow. We now have the ability to look at at uh, the placenta or tissue passed in a miscarriage that doesn't require growing chromosomes. Uh, and just as we are now testing embryos routinely at IVF for chromosome numbers, we can also then determine if, for example, the result comes back as 46XX or normal female, was that actually the embryo or was that mom? So there are a number of national laboratories that can do that. Uh, someone who has one miscarriage, I don't know that that would be particularly reasonable to do, but more than one miscarriage, at some point in time, you would like to be able to, to look at that and see, is this just something that happens or is there something that really increases the risk of miscarriage? And right now, the recommendation is um, that you should consider doing these testing after your second miscarriage. Is that, am I understanding, ASRM's current recommendation? Right. I'm, personally, I would do that with the second miscarriage, yeah, and get you information there. And it also, uh, I would look at uh, the mother and the father and look at their chromosomes, and that's just a blood test, be able to see whether they carried a translocation. Okay. Excellent. And the other tests that you mentioned were some tests on the the miscarriage the material as well, and then some were t blood tests on the mom, and then the, and then you just mentioned genetic testing on the mom and the dad. Correct. So that's the, the testing. Okay, gotcha. All right, we have a question from Hannah. She says, "What tests can be done to see if I have endometriosis?" Dr. Mensa, before you answer that, and I do want you to answer that, can can you talk to us about well, first of all, I think most people know what endometriosis is, but go ahead and, and, and tell us that. And then what percentage of case of, of infertility is caused by or endometriosis is a factor in? Yeah, so endometriosis um, is a condition, unfortunately, um, in a lot of women it uh, is most associated with pelvic pain, um, but it's believed to be a result of, um, in some ways, you know, there's a number of theories as to how it may derive, but one of the leading concerns is um, <clears throat> it emerges from retrograde menstrual flow um, such that the inside lining of the uterus, which we call the endometrium, actually flows um, into the abdominal cavity, um, can create these small sort of micro implants and as a result every um, menstrual cycle when again the normal hormones like estrogen particularly um, are increased um, can become stimulated and therefore become painful. Um, so it's a great question as far as how to identify um, endometriosis. There's not actually, unfortunately, just any one sort of lab test that a person can do. Oftentimes, um, a good history as well as physical exam um, can elucidate some evidence that, you know, a, a woman may be suffering from endometriosis. But really, the best diagnosis actually comes from um, actually a surgical evaluation with a histological diagnosis because, in fact, endometriosis is a histological diagnosis, meaning there there needs to be um, pathologically proven evidence of these small endometriosis implants, uh, either within the peritoneum, which is, again, the abdominal cavity itself, or, um, again, it could sometimes exist within the ovary itself. We call that an endometrioma. Or there can be small implants, um, you know, essentially involving anywhere in the pelvis or abdomen, such as on the uterus um, surface itself or even on the bowel or bladder. Um, so really, you know, it can be a, a very significant um, 
factor in terms of contributing to fertility issues, specifically because of sometimes the associated scar tissue that can develop um, in a woman's pelvis as a result of disease if it is extensive. Um, other times, you know, it's believed potentially as a result of this scar tissue as well to play a role, for example, in tubal factor infertility. And then there's also some evidence now emerging suggesting that depending on the extent of the disease and the severity of it, um, oftentimes it can have an effect on a woman's um, ovarian reserve, but also on her egg quality. Um, so really it's a, it's a tough diagnosis um, once it's made, um, and there are certainly things that we do either surgically um, or sort of non-surgically if, again, a woman is not necessarily coming to us for fertility purposes um, to treat the disorder. That's actually, and it, do, uh, it, would a reproductive endocrinologist be the best source for a woman who has symptoms of endometriosis if she's wanting to get a, a firm diagnosis? Dr. Mensa? So it's a good question. You know, general gynecologists can actually also um, sort of diagnose this and treat it as well. You know, oftentimes we will get referrals from our colleagues in gynecology um, just because of our expertise with respect to the ovary as well as, um, you know, evaluation of hormonal conditions. Um, but, you know, either way, it's, it's appropriate. Um, either start with your OBGYN. Again, oftentimes they can diagnose an endometrioma, for example, on a pelvic ultrasound um, and potentially resect that with surgical means. Um, but, you know, as far as, you know, treatment options as well, you know, one of the mainstays when you're not trying to get pregnant is often oral contraceptive pills, um, which, again, a general gynecologist is often able to manage. Um, but, you know, sometimes they either are not comfortable or, um, you know, the patient themselves just want a little bit more information on the disorder, in which case absolutely reproductive endocrinologists um, are often the go-tos as far as discussing, uh, again, some of the origins of this condition as well as doing the surgical evaluation and treatment of the condition or medical evaluation and treatment as may be indicated. You know, that, that brings up a question that I have had. It, it seems that uh, we've been doing this show for 10 years, and, and it, it seemed like I heard more at the very beginning about laparoscopies, uh, laparoscopies or, or surgery as, as more of a standard part of, of treatment of infertility. I don't hear that so much now. Um, is this just because of the the waters I swim in? And I'm not hearing it, or, or in fact, is that less of a standard part of treatment uh, now, Dr. Grunert? Yeah, I think it, at one time laparoscopy was considered to be part of the initial infertility evaluation, and it, you know, it turns out really that's not the case anymore. And the majority of patients probably don't need to have a laparoscopy. Uh, what we found is that if you have you know, no significant history of surgery, infection, things like that, if you have a normal ultrasound, normal exam, normal HSG, the likelihood that we're going to find the cause of infertility laparoscopy is very low. Uh, if you really look at it about 25% of the time and people with a normal exam were going to find something, uh, minimal or mild adhesions, minimal or mild endometriosis, uh, the treatment of which may or may not actually improve fertility. Uh, as Dr. Mensa was pointing out, patients with moderate to severe endometriosis, we can usually diagnose clinically either with exam or ultrasound. Uh, there's debate about the uh, the efficacy of treating minimal and mild endometriosis and whether that really improves the ultimate chance of pregnancy. Uh, and the same with minimal or mild adhesions that don't affect tubal function. So we do very 
very, very few laparoscopies now in patients unless there's a specific indication or abnormal physical or ultrasound finding. Well, and I've also wondered if if if, if we know that ultimately the success, well, we know that success rates with IVF have, have increased, and if ultimately you can do IVF, if the the goal for the patient is pregnancy, if you can achieve that with IVF, is it necessary to do surgery? Uh, is that really, is that going to improve what the ultimate outcome for the patient is? Dr. Mensa, thoughts on that? Yeah, so it's a good question as well. And, you know, honestly, it, it often depends on the clinical situation as well as the patient's individual scenario. So, for example, if it's a woman that has, you know, a known fibroid that is impacting the inside lining of the uterus, the endometrial cavity itself, then, you know, it's still a little controversial even, um, but there is some evidence that, for example, removing um, such a fibroid would be beneficial with respect to her attempts at conceiving um, down the road. Um, but as Dr. Gunnert said, you know, not every situation is necessarily amenable to surgery. Um, certainly, we know for endometriosis, again, there is a, a little bit of controversy as to, you know, essentially its utility in a, a woman that has mild disease and, you know, whether progressing just to something directly like IVF might be um, more efficacious for that sort of situation. Again, that, that needs to be made on a sort of individual basis. But that is all to say that, you know, certainly reproductive surgery, excuse me, um, does still play a role oftentimes, you know, when we do um, locate a problem or identify an issue uh, during the infertility evaluation. Um, but exactly, as far as whether it's sort of a required part of every single patient that comes into our offices these days, you know, they, they must undergo a laparoscopy or some sort of evaluation um, surgically, that's, you know, the, definitely the paradigm has shifted at this point. You are listening to Creating a Family. Today we're talking about understanding the standard fertility tests that you might get when you go to an infertility clinic. Uh, I wanted to tell you that Clout now ranks us as the number two online influencer in the world of infertility. Uh, we have a very large presence We primarily in the social medias. We primarily hang out at Facebook, Twitter, and Pinterest. There are three ways to connect with us on Facebook. You can connect with me personally at dawn.davenport1. You can uh, connect with us by liking our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash creatingafamily, or you can join our very active Facebook support group, which is facebook.com slash groups slash creatingafamily. But let's be honest, the easiest way is just to type in the words creatingafamily or the word infertility, Either one will get you to us, and you can like the page and join the group. It is a closed group, uh, so you have to request uh, um, to join, and uh, we will let you in afterwards. On Twitter and Pinterest, we hang out at, at Creating a Family. All right, I think we have time for one more question, and it is from Roberta, and it's about pelvic scarring. Dr. Grunert, it's a long question. I'm not going to read it all. But basically what uh, she is asking is, what are the causes of pelvic scarring? How can it impact her fertility, or could, she's asking, could it impact her fertility? And what's the easiest, fastest, best, cheapest, you name it, way to determine if she has it? Okay, what she's really asking about is what we call pelvic adhesions or scar tissue. 
And I think the best way to conceptualize that is, is if you have a piece of bubble gum stuck between two fingers, that's sort of the equivalent of what we think of in adhesions. Uh, adhesions can arise from an infection. They can arise from surgery. They can arise from endometriosis. They can arise from a cyst that ruptures. Uh, they can arise from non-pelvic things like appendicitis. Uh, so the first thing we think of when we, we're looking at that is the history. Is there a history of anything that might have caused adhesions? There's not a good way to diagnose adhesions. Sometimes the ultrasound will give us an idea because the ovaries may not be where we would expect them to be. Sometimes the HSG x-ray will show a tube either blocked or malpositioned. Uh, the ultimate diagnosis of adhesions is at laparoscopy, so that would be one of the indications if you think that's a fertility factor. The way adhesions can impact fertility is if they surround the ovary, they can physically keep the ovary from being able to release an egg freely. In humans, the ovary releases the egg into the abdomen, and the tube has to go pick it up, kind of like an elephant looking for a peanut. Uh, adhesions can affect the ability of the tube to move. It's not just a static structure. It really moves throughout the pelvis searching for eggs. And as we just pointed out with the HSC, adhesions can cause obstruction of the tube completely. Uh, the couple of options for treating adhesions are one, surgery, uh, and two, IVF. IVF bypasses the adhesions completely. And this is, as uh, Dr. Mensa was talking about, has been a paradigm shift from surgery to IVF. We used to do you know, four-hour microsurgeries before IVF was very effective. Uh, now, for most patients with severe adhesions, IVF far outstrips the results of surgery in terms of chance of pregnancy. And impact on, on the woman's body as well. I mean, the, um, you know, the, the, the total invasiveness of it is, is far less, and I imagine that's also a factor as well as you point out, the success rates have changed and made it more. Right. It also depends that if she has other symptoms from her adhesions, then there may be reasons to treat them besides fertility. Um, but if you're looking at somebody with severe adhesions uh, who wants to get pregnant, IVF is the most effective treatment. Yeah, that makes yeah that makes good sense. I should have. Yes, you're right. Fertility. Although we we tend to think of everything in terms of that here. You're right. There can be reasons outside of fertility that uh, that uh, adhesions uh, issues that adhesions would cause. All right. So do you Thank have you. Th thirty seconds for one quick comment? Absolutely. Yeah, because we talked about the initial evaluation of infertility and a thing that's been in the press lately and all over Dr. Google and every patient I have come in asks about it is AMH. Uh, and there was a, a series of, of news articles saying, well, AMH isn't what we thought it was, and people with low AMHs can get pregnant. And I think what people are looking at is really the wrong indicator. AMH tells us about the ability to make multiple eggs. So a lot of the treatments that we have involve that, whether stimulation, artificial insemination, stimulation, IVF. Uh, AMH doesn't say that a woman can't ovulate and get pregnant next month. So my way of thinking is kind of like you know, looking at the thermometer and asking if it's going to rain. You're kind of measuring the wrong thing. So AMH tells us about the utility and applicability of some of our, our treatment. Um, but just because someone has a low AMH doesn't mean they have no chance of getting pregnant. But but it, but you mentioned, or maybe it was Dr. Mensa mentioned at the beginning, that it is one of the standard things you test for at the beginning. So, so how do you use that information? So you get AMH. What is it telling you? Right, because a lot of the treatments that we have depend on our ability to get women to make more than one egg uh, right. and improve the odds. So if an AMH is very low, 
and we uh, correlate that with the number of follicles you see on ultrasound, then it tells us that it's not likely that we're going to get that woman to make multiple eggs. So, for example, IVF, if you're 40 and you can make one egg, uh, doesn't really give a very good yield in terms of pregnancy. Right, and I it doesn't say she couldn't have gotten pregnant on her own. Dr. Grunard on that agree completely. Uh, I think we're all pretty aware of that article that came out recently, um, and I agree right. with his assessment. Essentially, it's, it's a test that we use to really help us determine as your physician how aggressive we need to be with treatment. That's all. It doesn't tell anything about actual pregnancy potential. Okay. I'm really glad you brought that up because, as you would imagine, um, much of our audience has also uh, been reading and hearing and questioning uh, that test as well. Um, and I imagine that the upcoming um, 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 American Society of Reproductive Medicine conference will be a fair amount of discussion on there as well. A reminder to our audience, keep in mind that the information given in this interview is general advice. To understand how it applies to your specific situation, consult with your infertility professionals. Thank you so much, Dr. Mensa and Dr. Grunert, for being with us today on Creating a Family. I want to. I know there are going to be people who want to reach out and get more information uh, about you. So let me give out the websites for Dr. Mensa. You can go to uh, the website for her website, which is uh, fertilitynj.com, and it is for the Reproductive Science Center of New Jersey. And the website is fertilitynj.com. For Dr. Grunick, you can go to their website for Houston Fertility Specialists. And that website is HoustonFertilitySpecialist.com. And remember that specialist has an S, so it is HoustonFertilitySpecialist.com. Thank you so much for joining us today, and I will see you next week. Right now at the Home Depot, you'll save up to 35% off appliance special buys, like a GE Appliance's top-load washer and dryer pair with deep clean and deep rinse options, a reliable heavy-duty agitator, and four precise water levels, just $4.78 each. Wash, dry, save, repeat. Today is the day for doing with Spring Black Friday Savings now at the Home Depot. More saving, more doing. U.S. only while supplies last. Gas dryer extra C store for details valid through April 17th. Now at the Home Depot, save up to 35% off appliance special buys, like the Samsung stainless steel side-by-side refrigerator, just $9.98. You save $300. It's big enough to hold 25 bags of groceries. Unload those, and if that makes you thirsty, you'll really love the external ice maker and water dispenser. Today is the day for doing. Spring Black Friday savings now at the Home Depot. More saving, more doing. U.S. only while supplies last. See store for details valid through April 17th.